Good evening and welcome to Red Star Radio, a podcast brought to you by the Marx Engels Institute. And if you want more details of what that is and why it's launched, you can go to the previous episode where I spoke in more detail and at greater length about the new institute and why I've put it together and what we hope to do with it in the future. Uh, Needless to say, we have a lot to cover today, though, because today marks the return of the regular updates on the Ukraine war. And there is a lot to discuss, as you can see, if you've been looking at the various hysterical headlines pouring forth from the bourgeois press in Britain or in the United States or the rest of the Anglo world regarding the sheer devilry of Olaf Scholz denying the leopards uh, the chance to go and get blown up by Russian anti-tank fire in Ukraine. Free the leopards as one particularly idiotic demonstration attended by some ever so brave gentlemen who have presumably fled Ukraine and are now demonstrating outside of the German Chancellor's office rather than doing the really brave thing and going back and facing the Russian guns by themselves. But I'm sure it's easier to be very, very brave and militant about uh, Ukrainian nationalism when you're a good few hundred miles away in Berlin. But I'll come to, of course, Herr Schultz and uh, his reluctance to provide German tanks later on. We will begin, as we always do, with a brief overview of where things stand on the battlefield. War between Russia and NATO that takes place on the country, formerly known as Ukraine. Now, the big news from the last week has been, of course, the fall of Soledad, which is a town, decent-sized town, to the north of the city, which is either known, depending upon your preference, as either Artyomovsk or Bakhmut, Bakhmut being favoured by the U- Ukrainians, Artyomovsk being the name favoured by the Russians, or at least the uh, section of Russians who want to see it return to the name it held under the old USSR. Now, the fall of Solodar was denied for a long time by the Ukrainian authorities, and then finally admitted to, and then it was said, as is always the case, It goes through several stages uh, in terms of the Ukrainian government's denials. They first deny that the the Russians are even making an assault. Then they deny that it's making any progress. Then they claim that they're winning. The Russians are dying in thousands and thousands and thousands. Then they say that um, the town is not important. Then finally they admit that it fell. And now they've reached the stage where they admitted that it fell. And it fell to an assault led principally by the troops organized and employed by the Wagner private military company. And I'll come to more on them later on. But also forces from the Donetsk People's Republic. Now, of course, they are formally part of the Russian armed forces following the accession of the Donetsk People's Republic into the Russian Federation back in September. And, of course, with air support and artillery support provided by the regular Russian armed forces. Now, the Wagner Group attracts a lot of attention because, of course, they are something a little bit different uh, outside somewhat of the regular Russian army and apparently pursuing slightly different tactics in terms of urban fighting. One of the things they seem to specialize in is this house-to-house fighting. And if you've observed any of the videos that have been shot by their drone cameras in this ongoing war in Ukraine, you can see that they do specialize in this kind of urban house-to-house warfare, it would seem anyway. I'm untrained in military arts. My expertise in weaponry uh, really just uh, does stop at getting my uh, rifles badge in the scouts. But it is certainly an impressive-looking display they put on when they are clearing these houses, moving from place to place, guided by drones overhead. It's a very interesting development of urban warfare. And there's been a lot of talk about, well, what is is this the future of warfare? It's outside the Russian army, maybe. And this is according to Yevgeny Prigozhin, who is, of course, the head of Wagner, uh, that uh, he seems to be engaged in some sort of ego contest with the Russian high command, who initially didn't give the Wagner organization the credit for the fall of Solidar, until, of course... Prigozhin went and had a row and then there was a statement put out later on about the role of the Wagner troops and acknowledging that. And it certainly seems that they are operating a little bit differently than the Russian conventional Russian army. But of course they are part of the Russian armed forces. Make no mistake about that. They're as much part of the armed forces overall of the Russian Federation as the various different 
front companies that the CIA uses for their military operations. When the Bush presidency expanded the CIA vastly to include all these private military corporations that were acting really as the foot soldiers of the United States in plausible deniability operations, well, the Wagner organization has a relationship with certainly the Kremlin, and they are very much, I would think, more the Kremlin's men than they are the Russian Armed Forces Commander's men, but they are very much operating as an extension of the Russian government. It may be called a private military company, but the Kremlin is their principal client, and really the one that pays their bills. So the idea that they are totally independent from the Russian government is a bit of a misnomer. They're no more independent than the various different contractors that the US government uses. But they are certainly fighting in a different way, and certainly that seems to have proven very effective in Artemovsk and Solodar. And now, of course, Artemovsk itself is almost completely cut off, uh, according to reports from the Russian side. Ukrainians are, of course, denying that and are apparently rushing more men into this ever-growing circle of destruction that the whole Artemovsk-Solodar fight has turned into. Now, there's many different stories coming from the Russian side as to the level of casualties in Solodar and Artemovsk. The latest estimate of casualties is that it's at least 40,000 that have been killed there. Now, again, this is subject to independent verification or the it's a russian claim the ukrainians aren't commenting as always on the body count though just looking at the rather grisly display coming from russian reporters who are now on the ground in solodar and of course the helmet and body cameras of the wagner fighters themselves there is a huge amount of corpses there ukrainian corpses that the Wagner organization is now organizing a trade-off with the Ukrainians. Hundreds and hundreds of coffins in these trucks that they're sending over to the Ukrainian side. And this fight's been going on for many, many months. Whether the casualty number of 40,000 is accurate, I don't know. But it certainly seems that a huge number of Ukrainian men have died there, and ultimately fruitlessly. And... This leads us, of course, to a look at what the Ukrainian government is doing to replace the, the many, many troops that have been lost over the last few months. Remember, in the failed assault on Kherson, when the Russians still held Kherson city, the Ukrainians lost at least, well, between ten and 12,000 men. And those were of their top-of-the-line troops uh, who've gone through the NATO training courses, who are trained on the new equipment, and they lost an awful lot of tanks, armoured vehicles and artillery, all in a fruitless assault on Kherson, which, of course, the Russians ultimately withdrew from because of the, they said, the difficulties of keeping it supplied, but also because they wanted to shorten the front line and make it easier to control the whole area. Now, the Ukrainians, following these losses, and they, of course, had significant losses in their successful uh, advance around Kharkov, later on in autumn, uh, the autumn period, and though they did lose significant numbers of men around the uh, northern Lukansk and Donetsk regions when they were trying to advance through there as part of their Kharkov offensive, and they seem to have burnt through both the original army that they had when the special military operation began back in February of last year, and the replacement army that NATO trained and equipped for them, now they're on to a third army, which reflects, of course, the comments made by General Zaluzny in his interview with The Economist a few weeks ago, where he was commenting just before Zelensky's big trip to Washington that he needed this whole shopping list of military equipment to essentially build another army with, because they've now lost the equivalent of two armies, it would seem. The Russians have destroyed two of them one that was already there, one that NATO built for them, and now they are on another wave of mobilization. And this is confirmed by a lot of videos coming from civilians in Ukraine itself, where military, essentially press gangs, are going around presenting summonses to basically any guy between the age of about 16 and 70, it would seem. And this, of course, reflects upon... Uh, 
the tactics used by the Ukrainians. And according to uh, Russian sources, but also some confirmation of this from the Ukrainians as well, what they did through the, the summer before their autumn offensives, the Ukrainian side, was they mobilized an awful lot of men, gave them very, very basic equipment, and they were used, essentially, these men, a lot of whom were older, as essentially cannon fodder. They were stuffed into trenches, and their job was to act as bullet stoppers, whilst the Ukrainian command and the NATO trainers got the forces ready and equipped and up to speed on the new equipment that they would use for the offensives in Kherson and Kharkov later in September and October of last year. So this current round of mobilization may be that what they're planning to do is something similar, that they're going to mobilize as many men as they can, stuff them into the trenches on top of the corpses that are already there, use them to soak up any Russian advance, and then following more training being given on new, now NATO-provided equipment, not just old Soviet stock, but stuff that's come straight from the various armies of the NATO alliance. Don't worry, I'm coming to the tank story. And then have this newly better equipped force when all the conscripted men stuffed into the trenches have done their duty and died horrifically or been captured by the Russians, and if you were one of these guys, I don't know what the only reason that would keep you in a trench and not just surrendering would be the gun trained on your head by the uh, the Nazi political officers sat behind you, which is, of course, how the Ukrainian armed forces keep their discipline uh, in stop desertions. It's threats of execution and actual execution. Now, so their plan may be to use this cannon fodder to soak up any Russian advance, then use their newly trained men to launch a offensive in the spring. Maybe the talk is by May of this year. So maybe we're in for another round of that, but that would, of course, not count on the actions of the Russians. And the Russian forces are making an advance in the Zaporozhye region. Now, remember, there was talk of a potential Ukrainian attempt to advance through the Zaporozhye region, which is only partially under the control of the Russians, partially under the control of the Ukrainians, with the hope of advancing on Militopol, which if you look at the maps of the area, you can see that that's just down the road from the Zaporozhye region and would represent a significant victory for the Ukrainians if they were able to pull that off. Uh, it doesn't look like they will be able to because the job that was, or one of the jobs that was given to Sergei Surovikin, the overall commander of the special military operation in the months from September to early January, until when the command structure was rejigged again to put uh, chief of the Russian general staff Gerasimov uh, in overall command of the entire zone of operations, including, of course, Belarus. And his job was to grind down the Ukrainians, attack the power grid, but also build a comprehensive and deep set of defenses uh, across the entirety of the front line in anticipation of any future potential offensive from the Ukrainian side. And this leads us, of course, to looking at what the Russians are possibly doing. Now, they've started this offensive in Zaporozhye region. Is it going to turn into something much bigger, the kind of dramatic offensives that everybody has been expecting the Russians to start engaging in whenever their full complement of mobilized men is ready to go. Now it looks as if they are, and the conditions for an assault are present in terms of the temperatures dropping and the ground freezing. So is this going to be a prelude to some bigger offensive? Who knows at the moment, because as I've said before, none of us are on uh, Gerasimov's mailing list. But if I had to guess, I would say that the the idea of these big sweeping offensives uh, into Ukraine, I don't really think that that's the way that the Russian armed forces are going to go. And there's two reasons for that. One is that what they have been doing since at least uh, autumn of last year has been working for them, which is that they are quite prepared to trade ground if they can avoid high casualties themselves and the risk of encirclement but also if they can inflict more and heavier casualties on the Ukrainians by withdrawing tactically than they can by standing and fighting, then they will do that. And their aim is really to 
drain the Ukrainians of resources and manpower. And ultimately, I think, though nobody has said this, I don't think the Russians particularly mind the NATO countries sending in more and more and more of their own equipment because they have surely done an assessment that it's going to be incredibly difficult for the NATO countries to expand production in a way that would replace this stuff quickly. And the longer it goes on, the more that NATO is drained of equipment, the more the will to carry on amongst the NATO alliance fractures. Ukrainians, of course, suffer enormous casualties at the prompting of their NATO masters as they hurl themselves upon what is now a very well-organized set of Russian defenses. And the Russians sit tight, annihilate as many Ukrainians as possible, destroy the new equipment given to them by NATO or capture it, and then make slow advances when the Ukrainians have been ground down. So given that the economy of the Russians is not only surviving the sanctions regime, but according to Russian government sources, is moving back into positive growth this year, that inflation is becoming under not only under control, but it's uh, of a lesser degree than it is in the West, then the Russians have every reason to just carry on as they are. They will win this thing this year at some point, but they have no reason to take huge risks on the battlefield, such as um, big arrow maneuvers, so to speak, uh, rapid advances using um, armoured columns of men, as you saw in the early stages of the war, which led to the biggest amount of Russian prisoners and casualties taken was in those early phases of the war. Now, it's been observed that, and I've commented on this before in updates I've given in the past, that the Ukrainians and the Russians are fighting in two very different styles, which suits the training given to both sides and the strength of both sides. The Ukrainians have been trained, it would seem, in a form of rapid strike mobile warfare, which involves sending lightly armoured columns forward to probe for weaknesses in the enemy lines, and then sending the heavier stuff through to punch through these uh, weak, weak areas in the Russian front lines to try and then cause panic and disruption and send your force behind the enemy line as much as possible and then bring up the rest of your forces to solidify that breach in the enemy defences. And that's the training that the NATO officers have been given to the Ukrainian officers and what the Ukrainian officers have been implementing. But of course... Uh, that only works where either the Russians have a very lightly defended area like they did up near Kharkov back in autumn of last year, or when, as they did in the early stages of the war uh, or early stages of the special military operation back in late February to March last year, was that they were doing these rapid advances uh, themselves trying to push through Ukrainian lines and get as far towards uh, Kiev and other border regions as possible. And at that point, it enabled the Ukrainians to do things like ambush them, do counterattacks, encircle Russian some Russian forces, take more prisoners, inflict more casualties. So when the Russians were also trying to play this mobile warfare game, it would seem, the Ukrainian tactics were quite successful to a degree. But then the Russians, of course, following the Boris Johnson-inspired sabotage of the peace talks and the inset of uh, all-out war, the Russians changed tactics. They moved to a active defense, to use the military terminology, where they sought to ground the Ukrainians down by uh, using their advantage in air power, in artillery especially, to bombard them uh, to the point where they inflicted huge casualties on the Ukrainian forces. And of course, their idea is that the more and the heavier casualties they can inflict on Ukrainians, then eventually the Ukrainian state is going to start to buckle under the weight of this and be drained. It's already drained of resources. Then eventually NATO will be drained of resources. And of course, as I said earlier, the longer it goes on, the more the rows within NATO get more and more bitter and the alliance becomes more and more fractured. You're already seeing US lunatics like John Bolton calling for the Turks to be kicked out of NATO, which I think would make the Russians laugh heartily, NATO eating itself. So the unfortunate thing is that 
the NATO countries, in reality, the United States, they're the only ones that count, and their foul homunculus known as the British government, they don't want the war to end. They think that if they can just carry on um, doing hits on the, the on Russian territory, doing bomb attacks and sabotage attacks and air attacks or using drones or sea attacks using drones as they've tried to do already on Crimea, on the naval base, do drone attacks inside Russia itself, try and launch some sort of assault towards Crimea. The NATO commanders, the military men, know very well that they can't beat the Russians outright. But the political men think that if they can just embarrass the Russians enough, then there'll be a coup there will be some sort of uprising against Putin, the Russians will fall apart, and it'll be a glorious victory. And they've been thinking this since the very beginning, which of course leads me as a neat segue into another topic which links to this and is intimately connected to it, which is of course the fate of a certain Alexei Arastovich. Now if you don't know who Alexei Arastovich is, he was uh, Zelensky's chief propagandist and spin doctor throughout the war since uh, the early part of last year. He is an old friend of Zelensky's. He's another TV comedian, uh, TV clown, if you like. He's from the same group uh, of Zelensky's friends who he brought with him into the presidency. And he's been the propagandist on Ukrainian uh, news and also on his live streams, which have been very popular with the Ukrainian population. Now, the funny thing about Aristovich is that he wasn't always involved with Ukrainian nationalism. It used to be that he was involved with the Russian Eurasianist uh, philosopher and Russian civilizational nationalist, shall we say, philosopher, Alexander Dugin. Now, back in 2004, during the period of what is known as the Orange Revolution, which if you want more details of it, be sure to go back and listen to our first interview with comrade from the Chicago Workers' School, Slava, who was born and raised in Ukraine, and she talks extensively about the Orange Revolution, about Yanukovych and Yushchenko. So go back and listen to that for the full details of it. But needless to say, I'll do a shorthand version of it here. It was the United States, the British and the Canadians especially, their first attempt at doing a takeover of Ukraine. And Viktor Yushchenko was their chosen vessel to do this. And in the disputation between the uh, Yanukovych and Yushchenko camps and the chaos that followed the cancelled, ultimately cancelled first election, the Russian side of things was organizing themselves, the uh, Russian-speaking east of the country. And Aristovich was doing appearances with Dugin, talking about the need to fight back against the Western takeover. And yet, of course, 10 years later, he ended up involved with it, or ended up involved with the Zelensky government. Aristovich is a Russian speaker. He also is one of those in the Ukrainian government who still insisted that Russian speakers should be included in the Ukrainian or the vision for the Ukrainian state. Doesn't appear to have had a great success on that. And ultimately, he was fired from his position as chief propagandist for Zelensky following what can only be described as a outburst of truth when he talked about how a Russian missile that uh, the Ukrainians were claiming had hit a civilian area uh, and had caused civilian deaths. He was he then talked about how it was actually the Ukrainian air defense missile that hit the building and caused civilian casualties. Now, of course, this was anathema to the Ukrainian ultranationalists who don't like Aristovich anyway, and they were insisting that he had to be fired, and ultimately he resigned and Zelensky accepted the resignation of his old friend. And there's many uh, old friends of Zelensky's who came in with him who've uh, been booted out. Uh, Aristovich, I think, is the last man standing in that regard. So there's a question raised as to why the chief propagandist would essentially agree with the Russian verdict on why this building was hit and say it wasn't a Russian missile, it was the Ukrainian air defense that was ultimately responsible. And there can be only really one conclusion you can draw from this, which is not that suddenly Aristovich was maybe had too much cocaine, was drunk. Uh, it's that he wanted out. He's been towing the line relentlessly for nearly a year now. Clearly, and his subsequent actions have pretty much confirmed this, clearly he'd had enough. And he decided that if he, he was going to get himself sacked. 
And so he countered the Ukrainian government's own narrative on his own show and was subsequently removed from office. Since then, he has gone on to make a series of Instagram live streams where he's basically gone completely rogue. And one of the interesting things that he has said, and this was in a clip that he has been circulating widely today, was that in the early phase of the war, the Russians wanted to do a quick and clean strike on Ukraine to essentially force uh, the government into a capitulation uh, to agree to the Russian terms. And as Aristovich puts it in this uh, clip, uh, uh, basically sign the, sign the capitulation, then go to your dacha and write your memoirs. That was all that they were after, says, so says Aristovich. And that's an interesting admission for somebody who was right at the center of the Ukrainian presidency, the office of the president, and was acting as Zelensky's spokesman, spin doctor at the time. And it confirms something which myself and others who have been covering this for quite a while now have stated, that the initial push from the Russians was as small and as rapid as it was, because the whole idea was that they could destabilize the Ukrainian government, they could get a new deal uh, out of the Ukrainian government to stay out of NATO, basically secure the independence of the two breakaway republics, or at least freeze the conflict there, and then essentially leave it at that. Ukraine doesn't join NATO the same way Georgia hasn't joined NATO following the 2008 war. Essentially, what the Russians seem to want, and what Aristovich, his words today, confirm, is they wanted a rapid war that would be over quickly. The Ukrainians would sign a capitulation, agree not to join NATO. The breakaway regions would go to uh, status of being independent states, though in reality they would end up like South Ossetia, which is slowly being absorbed into the Russian Federation, but just over a longer period of time. And that was what the Russians were after. And it was the point of those negotiations which were taking place in Belarus initially and then were taking place under the stewardship of Erdogan in Istanbul and Ankara and which came very close to working and the reason why it didn't work was of course Zelensky uh, was insisting that he had to get security guarantees from the Americans and the Americans of course refused to provide it and this leads us into a uh, interesting area, which is that the assumptions made by everybody on the war so far have been proven to be wrong. The assumptions made by the Russians that they could essentially repeat the job they did on Saakashvili in Georgia in 2008, essentially force him to capitulate, then he his regime falls apart, and then eventually you get a government in there that would be more amenable to negotiations with the Russians. And that plan was clearly what they had in mind originally. And it was the thoughts of the American side that the Russians would go all in, that the Ukrainian government would just collapse. And they were surprised when the Russians didn't attack in the force that the Americans and the British and the rest of the NATO powers seriously thought that they would do. Because remember, in the early phases of the war, or well, the early phases of this this phase of the war, always remember the war's been going since 2014, the embassies of the NATO countries were mostly abandoned and they withdrew their staff either to Lvov in the far west of Ukraine or just pulled them out entirely. And they clearly expected a much heavier Russian attack than, as Aristovich has said, eventually took place. And this was behind the statement made, again, very early on in the special military operation, when General Milley, the chairman of the American Joint Chiefs of Staff, had gone and testified before Congress saying they expected Ukraine to fall within, I think he said, three days. And Hillary Clinton, who, of course, does not make statements off the cuff. She is a spokeswoman for the most aggressive elements in U.S. imperialism. She went on TV saying that, well, we're going to have all these sanctions against Russia and they are going to be involved in a counterinsurgency campaign that they won't be able to beat and this will uh, severely damage Putin. And this was the American plan. This is what, the, what they planned for was a rapid collapse of Ukraine followed by 
a opportunity presenting itself for them to weaponize, especially the banderist, neo-fascist elements in Ukraine, in the same way that the OSS and CIA ran a insurgency campaign in Western Ukraine all the way up to 1952. So seven long years after the end of World War II, a very brutal uh, war continued in Western Ukraine, which killed many, many thousands of people and was only ended after the Soviet military and security forces decisively defeated the insurgent army. And of course, was ended with the killing of Stepan Bandera by the KGB in his hideout in Germany uh, in the early 1950s. Clearly what they hoped to do was to run an insurgency inside Ukraine itself and that they thought that the Russians would rapidly occupy the entirety of the country and that would give them the opportunity, to, especially in western Ukraine, to run this insurgency campaign that would be relatively low cost for the United States. All they would need to do is to supply weaponry to the insurgents. They wouldn't need to supply any of this heavy stuff. There'd be no need for artillery, or at least at least initially, or uh, talk of providing F-16s or anything like that. It would be like small arms, uh, the kind of thing that an insurgent army would use. Small arms, explosives, anti-tank missiles, anti-aircraft missiles, all the kinds of things that could be provided quite easily by the NATO powers, and at the same time jack up the sanctions as far as they possibly could in the hope that the Russians would be unable to control this insurgency campaign, that the Russian economy would fall apart, and the com combination of the two of those would lead to the destabilization of the Putin-led government, and ultimately its fall, and the glorious rise to power of, well, they would like Navalny, but just about anybody else would suit them. So, this was the American calculation. This was the war that U.S. imperialism thought that it was getting in late February to early March. Now, he didn't get that war because the Russians didn't act in the way that the Americans clearly thought that they were going to. Merely going before Congress, making that statement that Ukraine was going to fall apart, was based on the U.S.'s intelligence assessment of what they thought the Russians were going to do. Of course, the Russians didn't have, at that time, de deployed anything like the numbers that would be required to take over a country, uh, which is the second largest in Europe. Uh, it's an area that's uh, the same size as Texas. It's a huge place. And they only had uh, just slightly less than 200,000 men. Estimates vary between... 160,000 to 200,000. Most settle on the figure of around about 190,000. The bulk of the day-to-day -day fighting was being done by the Donetsk and Lugansk militias, backed up by Wagner and the Chechens, and with, of course, the Russian army providing the artillery and heavy support, and, of course, the supply and resupply of these armies. And, of course, there was a big thrust on Kiev. There was a big dramatic parachutist landing at Gostomoyl airfield, just outside of Kiev, where the Russians took that airfield in a special forces operation and held it against very heavy Ukrainian resistance and then attempts to recapture it until, of course, the Russians, as part of what was supposed to be a goodwill offer, withdrew from around Kiev, and that was supposed to be part of the negotiations. But the Russians didn't have enough men to take all of Ukraine. You can't take a country the size of Ukraine, even with 400,000 people, never mind barely 200,000. So the idea the idea that this was going to be a, a quick takeover of all of Ukraine was erroneous. It was a miscalculation by the United States. And of course, the Russians also made a miscalculation by not going in heavier. They ultimately caused the United States and the foul creatures in the British government led by Boris Johnson to believe that, well, the Russians are weak. They're soft. They're not up for it. They're divided. Putin's not. Putin's lost it. We can now fully arm and equip a new Ukrainian army to embarrass them on the battlefield to the point where, with the, combined with the sanctions, now we can secure the destabilization of the Putin government and now we can have the regime change we've been looking for. And that calculation proved to be erroneous as well because the American and British assessment on the Russian economy just turned out to be completely wrong. Not only is it far more durable than they imagined, 
it's far more diverse than they imagined. They've been running a form of heavily state-directed capitalism for many years now. In fact, it's been the state direction over the economy has been growing, as I've said before, throughout Putin's tenure, and they've been making gigantic efforts to ensure that they were immunized as far as they possibly could be against all the effects that these sanctions that they knew were coming were going to have when eventually there would be an out-and-out break with the West. But again, you have perhaps always in war a series of miscalculations by each side based on erroneous assumptions about each other. And this is certainly the case in the war in Ukraine and certainly the case regarding American assumptions about Russian military tactics, about Russian force strength and about the Russian economy and also about the stability of the Russian government. The monomaniacal obsession that they have with Putin I thought for a long time was just for propaganda purposes. But if you go back and you re-examine the actions of the United States and then you read the memoirs of some of the foul slugs that have inhabited the United States government over the last 20 years, you can see that they really are obsessed with the idea that it's all Putin, that he is the mastermind. He is sat there with his 27-dimensional chessboard making moves across the world. It's not just propaganda, though it started as that. I think a lot of these people have started to believe their own hype. And if you read, again, Obama's ridiculous book called A Promised Land, and ever the empty, pretentious buffoon, Obama believed that when Medvedev became president, that it was an opportunity to essentially bring Russia back over into being a Western vassal state, more specifically an American vassal state, because he could work his personal charm with Medvedev and use that to make sure that Putin didn't run again in 2012. Well, of course, Medvedev dutifully didn't run again in 2012 and Putin came back. And the American government at the time, if you think back to 2012, had an enormous freak out about this. And you get the Navalny-inspired protests in Moscow and St. Petersburg and a whole load of um, hysterical stories in the Western press about this is the moment, this is the moment, the Russian spring is here, and of course, didn't materialize. So where are we now is the interesting question coming out of all this. Given the miscalculations that the Americans made over and over again throughout this war, each time managing to get it wrong about the various different aspects of this conflict, from the political to the military, and of course the economic, which is at the root of all this. So... Where are things now? Where Well, where we are now is that NATO is now involved in a rather bitter dispute between the Americans and the Germans, where the German government, led by the corrupt buffoon known as Olaf Scholz, is making something of a show of resisting American demands that they send these Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine. Scholz has shot back at Biden, saying, well, we'll send them when you send your Abrams tanks. And, of course, the Americans are refusing. Why? Well, let's think about this for a moment. The American military seem to be opposed to the move, and they are opposed for a variety of reasons. Some of the higher officers won't want to have their own tank forces stripped bare for uh, the purposes of sending these over to Ukraine, where the Russians will just blow them all up. And the Russians will have been studying the Abrams tank, the British Challenger tank, the French Leclerc tank, and the Leopard tank, all of which have been in action at various places around the world, especially the Leopard, which, of course, infamously was uh, knocked out by fairly rudimentary anti-tank defences and anti-tank weapons in northern Syria by both ISIS and the Kurdish forces when the Leopard was in use by the Turkish armed forces. But the Americans don't want to have their prize tank, the Abrams, be shown to be not as effective as they're trying to sell it as. The military don't want their tank forces stripped bare uh, for the purposes of a fight that the American military commanders, for all these clowns, go on TV and pump their chests and gesticulate wildly that Ukraine will win. Most of them, other than the completely far gone and those who are the direct financial incentive to lie, know very well that this isn't going to end in any other way other than a Russian victory, and that anything that they send over there is just going to end up a smoldering wreck on a battlefield. So there's those reasons. 
There's also the fact that there are those in the American military hierarchy who are far less enthusiastic about this war, in fact, not enthusiastic about it at all, and regard the civilians who are the most enthusiastic about arming Ukraine, which is, of course, Antony Blinken in the State Department, perhaps Lloyd Austin, the ex-general, and Raytheon board member who sits in the Pentagon. They are the ones who are more enthusiastic about this war. The military don't seem to be as up for it. And that's because they know very well, as people like Scott Ritter and Douglas McGregor have pointed out, that the American capacity ultimately to fight the Russian armed forces is not good. And if it goes in that direction, that they're in for a severe problem. So they don't want to see this escalate, which would what a direct dispatch of all these American-made Abrams tanks would it mean. It would mean an escalation from the American side. And so the American decision-making process is probably, my guess is, caught in a dispute between the military side and the civilian side. And the compromise is, well, we'll force the Germans to send all their tanks. Because well, who gives a fuck if Germany's uh, asset stripped? And the answer to that question is that the German military care. Now, when ex-generals go out and make statements, especially ex-generals who have only recently retired from service, as has been the case recently in Germany, with various ex-members of the uh, Bundeswehr High Command going out into the press and making statements, well, they're making statements not just on behalf of themselves, but it's a reasonable assumption to make that they are making the statement on behalf of their old comrades who are still serving in the hierarchy of the German army today. And they have been making noises about the fact that this whole thing is a bad idea, that sending the leopard tanks is a bad idea, that Germany shouldn't do it, that there should be some way out of this mess in Ukraine found, and that the German government has made mistakes in its policy. You've also had open dissent uh, breaking out in the Bundestag in Germany uh, between principally some people on the left, but also... Uh, members of the AFD, the right-wing party, Alternative for Deutschland, who, again, are as split and as patchy on this as the likes of Die Linke are, with some sort of pro-NATO, pro-US factions, and others more coherently German nationalist about things and seeing this as not in the national interest of... Uh, the national interest as defined by petty bourgeois German nationalism. And so there's been increasing levels of opposition even inside parliamentary structures in Germany. And you had some demonstrations in Germany against this, though not large by any means. But if there's a split in the military hierarchy, then Olaf Scholz clearly has a problem. And so Scholz has reflected what is a growing tension within the German government, between him, himself and the SPD, where there's even been rumblings in the SPD, which is as pro-NATO as it gets, the SPD as a party, but even within they, their ranks, dissent is breaking out. And so Schultz, in an attempt to keep his very fragile coalition between the now increasingly reluctant elements of the SPD, the wild foaming-at-the-mouth imperialists known as the Green Party, and the equally foaming-at-the-mouth Free Democrats, they are all um, finding themselves in a deadlock. And so Schultz's way to try and play his way out of this is to make the demand of Biden, saying, well, we're not sending our tanks until you send yours, leading, of course, various morons to go out onto the streets of Germany and demand to demand to send the leopards in, which of course is ridiculous. It's not going to make any difference. The Russians uh, just said, well, yeah, we'll blow them all up. Or in the words of Peskov, who's seen as a sort of inside Russia, Peskov, who's Putin's official uh, press man, he's seen as this sort of uh, pro-American stooge, but he basically said, well, 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 if you send the leopards, we'll blow them all up, but they'll all burn like the rest. So the Russians seem unconcerned, um, largely, with whatever the hell it is that the NATO member states managed to cobble together in terms of tanks. More reconditioned old Soviet period T-72s or T-55s from the 1950s. The tiny number of Challenger tanks that the British have uh, decided to send, which is 12, 12 tanks isn't going to last very long up against the Russian military in Ukraine. Even I know that. And whatever they managed to winkle out of the Germans. 
Now, the Americans seem to be pursuing the tactic of, well, we'll send everything but the Abrams tank. So they're sending like this lighter infantry fighting vehicle called the Bradley. They're sending various other uh, light armoured vehicles that they can dig out. The French have sent various light tanks that they were going to decommission from service anyway. So what will probably happen in the end, I suspect, is that the Americans may well release a token number of Abrams tanks from any reserve that they've got, because pretty sure they've got a reserve somewhere, in order just to get the Germans to release or tell the other countries in Europe who have Leopard 2 tanks that they can be released to the Ukrainians. They'll, the Americans will probably have to make some sort of token gesture, which will be enough to make it so that they can call upon the militantly pro-American forces in Schultz's coalition to force Schultz's hand into releasing the Leopard tanks. So you can expect an announcement, I think, on America providing a small number of Abrams tanks, just enough to force Schultz's hand, because these light infantry fighting vehicles, I don't think are going to cut it. I think that Bryden is going to need to essentially um, give in to, or appear to give in to Schultz's. What will end up being sent is like, they'll send like 10 or 20 or something, because the American military will not be happy about it. And so then you'll end up with a complete hodgepodge of light um, semi-tank vehicles, infantry fighting vehicles, armoured cars, the Humvees, which are essentially armoured jeeps from the American military, and the however many Leopards and however many Abrams tanks ends up getting sent over there to build this new Ukrainian force, which they're putting together to come back to the discussion of what's going to happen with the Ukrainian army, this new force that they're hoping to train whilst the conscripted men who've been dragged off the streets of Odessa and Kharkov and Kiev and anywhere else they can find them, once they've done their job as acting as bullet sponges, they will then deploy this new armoured force hoping to make some sort of breakthrough. But as others have pointed out in commentaries on military equipment, Scott Ritter had a very interesting discussion with a former American army officer who's of Russian descent who now lives back in Russia, who'd served as um, a tank officer. They had an interesting discussion recently on Scott Ritter's channel regarding the practicalities of deploying things like Abrams tanks and the sheer amount of maintenance that you need for these things, not just the Abrams tank, but all modern tanks. So you need it for the Challenger, the Leopards, and you need essentially a ex very extensive um, engineering operation to support these things because they even if you discount the obvious risks of the things getting blown up by the russian armed forces they break down the tracks come off the wheels sometimes come off the engine doesn't work they're not as reliable as the pr for them allows uh, for so you need to be able to fix these things in the field, according to those who know how they work. And can the Ukrainians do that? Well, at the moment, they're having to send the armoured vehicles that do get damaged by the Russians all the way back to the Polish border to get retooled, then brought back again, because the Russians have been targeting all of the mechanics workshops that have existed previously all the way across the front line. It's one of the first things the Russians started blowing up, because... Without the ability to repair these things in the field, it makes the logistics question ever more deadly for the Ukrainians because they've got to then ship these armoured vehicles and tanks all the way back hundreds and hundreds of miles into Poland and then bring them all the way back again on either trains or trucks, which, of course, can be targeted by the Russian air forces. And so what they are going to give Ukraine will barely last a few battles, in my estimation. So this is another case of the Ukrainians being kept afloat, barely, by what will end up being all these mixed tank and light infantry fighting vehicle donations from the Western countries. And then the whole thing, all these things will get blown up and destroyed in a matter of a couple of months, or decommissioned, put out of action, able to be used anymore. And then they'll be back to square one again. And then thousands and thousands of more Ukrainians will have died because at this stage, 
the only idea that the United States has is just keep the war going. That's it. There's no thinking beyond that. Just keep the Ukrainians going. Because at some point, something will turn up. Either the sanctions will start to work, mystically. The oil price cap will start to work. The Russians will be abandoned by their allies. That's not happening. Um, the, If anything, the alliances built by the Russians very skillfully over the last decade are not only holding firm, they are deepening. Now, there is a separate issue to be discussed over uh, President uh, De Silva, known as Lula, uh, the president of Brazil, and his attempt to balance between uh, the BRICS and the G20, uh, saying that he's going to be focused as much on the G20 as on BRICS in one statement that was attributed to him. He seems to be trying to balance things out um, in a way that would keep the various different parties within the Brazilian ruling class at bay. I'll do a whole separate program on that. But certainly the Brazilians aren't turning their backs on their long-standing ties to the Russians and to BRICS anyway. The Indians, of course, are developing more and more trade deals with the Russians and are settling oil deals in uh, rupees and rubles. The Russians just signed uh, an agreement with the Iranians bringing Iran into the Eurasian Economic Union, which is, of course, this free trade and low-tariff area of uh, the world, which is consisting mainly of the former Soviet states in Central Asia, which is um, directly linked, of course, to Russia. And now the Iranians have joined that uh, to secure uh, the removal of or the significant reduction of tariffs on a lot of their export goods. The Iranians are also uh, undergoing a bit of an export boom to Russia because, of course, the level of sanctions against Iran for many, many years has, in a perverse way, though an understandable way, actually aided the development of domestic industries in a way that has been closely studied by the Russians. Because, of course, foreign capital was cut out of Iran almost entirely for a long time. Although, of course, some did get in via the activities of banks like HSBC. But the devastation that the unmitigated access of foreign capital to a developing economy um, that capital can do when imperialist states choose to flood certain nations like the sub-Saharan African nations with their exported capital in order to buy up assets gain access to raw resources, uh, exploit of course uh, the labor in those countries that can be purchased much cheaper than it can in the West all of that um, has largely been evaded in Iran precisely because of the extreme level of sanctions that the United States has placed on them. So partly as a consequence of that, they have been forced via another heavily state-directed economy to invest in their own industries, to grow their own domestic production base in a way that might not have happened had they been integrated into the American global system. And so Iran now is finding more outlets for its manufactured goods in countries that have been heavily sanctioned by the United States. And now that includes Russia. So the sanctions regime that the Americans designed over the last, really over the last 15 to 20 years to be a low-cost alternative to direct warfare, in the end, many countries have found ways to use them to their advantage, including the Russians. And the Iranians have been very successful at this. So now they are undergoing an export boost is going to provide much-needed foreign currency and capital coming into Iran. Joining the Eurasian Economic Union, of course, also increases their access to the markets of the Central Asian nations, which immediately border them. So this is all good news for the development of Iranian capitalism, because, perversely, the American sanctions had the effect of actually stimulating the very thing that a lot of these countries needed to have, which is if they wanted to develop their own capitalist economies, which is they needed very, very high tariff and trade walls, and they needed to have the state control very strictly what kind of foreign capital was allowed in and what wasn't, and what areas foreign capital was allowed to invest in and on what terms. And this is, of course, what the United States did to develop its economy, and it's, of course, provided the long-running well, part of the long-running problems between the North and the South, between protectionism and free trade. But 
it's almost universally acknowledged, except by real loonies of the Austrian school, from Keynesians to Marxists to pseudo-Keynesians to various forms of economic liberals that aren't quite as out there as the Hayekists, etc., that in order to actually build a successful capitalist economy, you need to, first of all, maximally exploit the resources available to you, build up your own independent industrial base, control how much capital, how many ca- much capital and how many imported goods can come in. And only once you've established a real strength and control over that, can you afford then to open up and allow uh, more overseas investment into your economy, especially if that investment comes from countries that are considerably more powerful than you. So in the end, to in a, in a strange way, US sanctions regimes ultimately helped to erode and destroy US power by forcing countries to move out of the period of being dominated by American capital, because simply American capital was not available to them. It forced them to innovate and do things, which had they been bound into the American global system, they would not have done. Like The Iranian capitalist class, such as it is, would not have been investing as heavily in manufacturing, for instance, had there been available to them the full scope of manufactured goods that were from the United States and from Western Europe, who would have gone in there and dominated those markets if they weren't specifically excluded from them, again, by the sanctions regime. And so many countries have looked at the sanctions regimes and have learned about it. And it's appropriate that we end on this point, because this is something that, again, Putin has said, most famously back in 2018, which is, let them put more sanctions on, we'll be able to do more of what we want. Because again, the sanctions regime allows him to exercise more control over the development of Russian capitalism in a way that was perhaps not possible or definitely wouldn't have been possible had the various different uh, foreign capitalist powers that have now been forced to leave or hide their business ties in the Russian Federation been able to stay there. It has forced Russian capitalism down a new path of development and ultimately is making it stronger. Its eastward tilt is making it much stronger than it would have done had they simply remained in the relationship with the West. And this, of course, explains the slow development of the Russian policy towards Ukraine and why ultimately Putin didn't go all in in 2014, why he signed that Minsk agreement even though he would have been told that, of course, the Americans certainly had no intention of sticking by it and were going to do everything they possibly could to make sure that they got their objectives in Ukraine secured anyway. The truth is that the Russian capitalist class still in 2014 had incredibly extensive and ties to Germany and other major capitalist states in Europe, wanted to keep those ties, would have been opposed to a sudden severing of them and would potentially have caused problems for the Putin-led government. Maybe not fatal problems, but more problems than he was prepared to tolerate at the time. The sanctions that followed and the long period of increasing hostility from the United States that followed in the eight years that passed between 2014 and the beginning of the special military operation in 2022 enabled Putin bit by bit, little by little, to slowly get the Russian economy in a place where they could undergo that severance and that he wouldn't face a full-fledged rebellion from the Russian capitalist class. It would be something that would be under control and the transitional arrangements to push Russian capital eastward would be readily, readily in place and that the divorce from the West would not cause the internal damage via a potential revolt of capital that could have happened in 2014. So that brings us to the end of this update. I'll be back again with more of this tomorrow. Until then, be sure to go to the new website for the Marx Engels Institute. That's simply marxenglesinstitute.org. Find that very easily via your local search engine. And check out the essay that's on there that I put up yesterday on the 99th anniversary of the untimely death of Lenin. I wrote yesterday about why his work, what is to be done, is such a foundational text in modern Marxism and why uh, the full scope of the lessons contained therein haven't been absorbed or learnt properly yet by especially the Western left. So be sure to check that out. If you'd like to support the program, go to our Patreon page and I'll link to that in the show description. But until tomorrow, 
Thank you for listening.